Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Dr. Isha Desai. Today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Thomas Moore. Dr. Moore has been the Dean and Chief Academic Officer at Idaho College of Osteopathic Medicine, or ICOM, since October 2019. ICOM is the first medical school in Idaho and was formed to address the current and growing shortage of physicians in the Mountain West and beyond. ICOM welcomed its inaugural class in August 2018. And Dr. Moore himself practiced primary care internal medicine for 10 years in Michigan and has continued to maintain a part-time clinical practice as a hospitalist in medically underserved regions. Thank you so much for being with us here today. It's a pleasure, Dr. Desai. Thanks for having me. Well, let me start out by just saying, please call me Rishi. I appreciate the formal title, but it's very informal here on, on the podcast. So, And so feel free to call me Tom as well. Okay, sounds good. Well, let me, let me just start out with just saying, Tom, how are you doing these days? You know, we're doing great. This has been somewhat of a transition since I've only been in Idaho for nine months or so since last October. And obviously, there has been a lot going on since then uh, between COVID and civil unrest and everything that's going on with that. But um, I was blessed to come to an institution that already had great foundations, uh, wonderful faculty and, and students and staff that were already in place when I got there. So it's truly been a pleasure to take the helm of a new but still great organization. Do you mind then just kind of diving into your background? Tell us, you know, what got you interested in the medical field and specifically osteopathic medicine? Well, I came from a long line of, of healthcare professionals. My parents, grandparents, even great-grandparents were pharmacists, actually. My first job was working in a pharmacy with my mom and then with my dad, was around uh, physician offices and physicians and medicine and sick people and all of that from early on. My grandmother was a nurse. And so it was always kind of a calling that I knew I was going to go into it. Um, I was fascinated with biology at an early age um, and kind of a calling to be able to help people in the process. So all of that kind of came together. And really the other added part about that is why did I end up going into academic medicine? Early on, I found that I had a niche in teaching that was something that I really enjoyed from early days as a, as a boy scout, teaching other scouts how to, you know, how to do things, whether it's tie a knot or build a campfire, to going through even into grad school and being a teaching assistant uh, at my university. And those kind of things all just kind of coalesce to, hey, this is exactly where I'm supposed to be, where I can help people, teach people, practice biology in a way that does all of that. And so it was, uh, it was kind of a perfect coming together of all, all of the parts that were making me me at that time. And for many of our listeners who, who don't know the nuances between osteopathic and allopathic medicine, do you mind going through that? And, and also the ICOM version of that, like what is the ICOM lens through which they view osteopathic medicine? Sure. And, and it's not really an easy question to answer. I think that for 120 years, osteopathic physicians have been working on you know, what we call our elevator speech, you know, the, the quick and easy answer for what is a DO. Um, and, and we still haven't figured that out yet. We're still working on it. But I'll tell you, there's a couple of ways to answer that. One is the historical answer. And that is that we were founded about 120 years ago by an MD, Andrew Taylor Still, who was a Civil War physician who saw that 
the medicine of that time really wasn't helping. Um, you know, you could you could chop off limbs, you could cauterize things. They had about, you know, what, 15 different medicines, most of which we now know are either highly addictive, like laudanum or opium, or uh, were just downright poison, like uh, like mercury. And so, you know, after watching so many people die, he said, there's got to be a better way. And so he kind of withdrew to a place in Missouri, Kirksville, Missouri, and said, you know, I'm going to come up with a better way of providing care. And he really focused on what that meant with health and healthcare and everything that we talk about these days, like diet and nutrition and exercise and, and the biopsychosocial model of being healthy. And to look at, at a doctor as being a healthcare provider that promotes health rather than just to treat disease. And as a part of that, he came up with a method of musculoskeletal manipulation where we use our hands on the body to both diagnose and treat. You know, some people think of chiropractic as, okay, well, they crack bones and they fix things. Um, and, you know, and if you look back in the day, uh, chiropractic started after osteopathic medicine in another Midwestern town there in Davenport, Iowa. But, you know, we've been divergent in different ways between chiropractic medicine and osteopathic medicine over the years. Osteopathic medicine has continued to be true to that high touch, low tech part of what we do, the laying on of hands to, to diagnose and treat, but we've espoused every other manner of uh, the full practice of medicine. So DOs can be practitioners in any specialty. You can do residencies in neurosurgery or family medicine or cardiothoracic surgery or obstetrics and gynecology. And we have full practice rights as equal physicians in every one of the 50 states in the United States, along with our MD colleagues. And we work alongside our MD colleagues all the time. So that's the historical perspective about it. So what makes us different today? And that's a little bit more difficult because, you know, they, they talk about how the rising tide raises all ships. Well, over the years, um, our colleagues in allopathic medicine, MDs, have really changed who we are as DOs from just manipulators back in the turn of the century, the last century, to full spectrum physicians that still have this additional skill set that we still continue to, to treat. And we, we will train our MD colleagues in that as well. And so what makes us different now is in some ways things that have made us more similar to our MD colleagues. We used to say, well, we're holistic. We look at the whole person. We don't just look at the disease process. Well, I'd be hard pressed to find any of my MD colleagues that wouldn't say, what are you talking about? I look at the whole person too. And they do. But that might not have always been the case. And the idea that the focus on the person, the, the focus on everything within that person and around that person makes a difference in their health care might have been something that we helped to move forward in some ways as well. Um, we've become more like MDs and we like to think that MDs have come a little bit more like us in the process as well. Uh, we work closely together now, and it's difficult to say, well, you're different only because you practice manual medicine or musculoskeletal therapy. We do. Some of our MD colleagues do as well, and we'll teach it to them if they're interested in it. The educational model is a little bit different. Most MDs, not all, and I hate to generalize because everyone's going to say, well, that's not what my school did, because there's always different schools that do things in different ways. 
But many, if not most, of the allopathic MD schools train in huge academic medical centers with huge infrastructure for specialty care and research infrastructure. And American medicine needs that. We need people to be doing that high level of care, the referral centers, the high level research and clinical care that we absolutely need. But if you think about it, if you're a medical student that trains in that milieu, everything that you see about the practice of medicine is going to be the super subspecialty ivory tower approach to medicine. And again, we need that. We really do. If all of your mentors are super subspecialists, what are you going to want to be? You're going to want to be a super subspecialist. In the osteopathic world, amongst all of our institutions, None of our schools own an academic medical center. We all have a distributive model of medical education where our third and fourth year students train in community-based hospitals in more smaller rural institutions where the hope is, is that their mentors and the people they look up to are going to be community-based physicians providing primary care. And that's what they're going to want to be. If you've never practiced medicine in a small hospital, in a mid-level or a small institution, you don't have a concept of going and working there when you get out. And so we want to make sure that that's ingrained into the training. And because of that, our approach to osteopathic medical education means that we have a much higher level, higher numbers of our graduates that go into primary care and go into rural medicine when you look at it by percentage. And again, MDs go into rural primary care as well, but our focus lends itself to filling that niche. And as much as we need the academic medical centers, there's certainly an argument to say that we really, really need that in the smaller towns, the rural areas. And when we come to, you mentioned ICOM, well, what attracted me here? The state of Idaho is, depending on what poll you look at, 49th or 48th in the nation when it comes to physicians per capita. This is an area of great need. And yet the Boise Meridian Eagle area, which we call Treasure Valley, is ranked in the top three fastest growing communities in the country. So we're already 49th in the nation in the fastest growing community. Where are we going to go with that? And so you're right. The state of Idaho has never had a medical school. But I will say I, I want to give a shout out to the University of Washington because their WAMI program has had students training in Idaho for 50 years and they do a great job. But in 50 years, we've not moved that needle from 49th in the country. So it's not enough. We need more. And so the idea was born with ICOM with, you know, we can really make a difference in an area of great need. And our mission, it's written in our mission statement, is to help train quality, competent physicians, not just for Idaho, but for Montana, Wyoming, North Dakota, and South Dakota, all schools with incredible needs. And also in the case for Montana and Wyoming, no medical schools in those states as well. So that really drew me, you know, my professional life, I've been looking at going to places where I can make a difference and I can fill a need. And I feel that ICOM and our students and for me personally, we can make a difference in this region of the country. Wow, that's an amazing elevator pitch to explain osteopathic medicine. It's also a very compelling pitch for why ICOM is so needed. I'm curious, like, what do you imagine the future to be? Like, what are the next big benchmarks you'd like ICOM to help set up as the next successes? 
Oh, sure. Well, clearly, if we're going to make a difference in the physicians per capita in this region, starting a medical school is not the only answer. It has to be layered on with increased graduate medical education in this region. And again, depending on the poll, we're 46, 45th in the nation, somewhere around there in a number of residency positions per capita as well in the state of Idaho and even fewer. Uh, there's only two residency programs in the entire state of Wyoming. And so, you know, we need to make a difference there. And, uh, you know, the studies generally show that students are more likely to settle within 150 miles of where they complete their postgraduate training as opposed to where they go to medical school. So we need to combine both of those, both undergraduate medicine and GME. And that's uh, really one of the next steps. And really the first thing that I did when I came to ICOM was to appeal to the board that we need to expand our efforts in GME and to create and stand up an office of graduate medical education that will be proactive active and going out and hunting down spots that might be options that might consider GME and help to create that. In my professional life and the institutions that I've been at, this is actually the third new medical school I've helped to start, also down in, in San Antonio at the University of Incarnate Word. I was uh, the Associate Dean for Graduate Medical Education there. And then prior to that, I had been the interim and acting dean at Rocky Vista University, which was also a brand new school uh, when we started. And as a part of my role within graduate medical education, I've helped to start over 25 different residency programs and different specialties. I won't say that's only along with a whole team of people that was doing it. So I certainly don't want to act like I'm taking credit for all of that. But I do have a good amount of knowledge of how to help set up residency programs. And that is a major goal of mine in my new position here as dean. So as a new dean, you come in at such an interesting time in history. I feel like Maybe all new deans feel a little bit bewildered by all the new things they have to deal with, but you've had to deal with a lot more than the average new dean because of COVID. I'm curious to know how that's been personally for you in your journey and also for the university. Personally, it has been a challenge, but honestly, and I mentioned before, I'd been an interim dean before in a very tumultuous time in, in the startup of another new school. I was expecting there to be a lot more challenges within ICOM as I got here. And as I mentioned before, I, I've been incredibly pleasantly surprised at how well my predecessors have done and the faculty uh, in putting together a quality curriculum and an incredible facility. So luckily, I didn't have to deal with some of the uh, other challenges that I was expecting. Not that I in any way wanted COVID. Nobody did. But it's been interesting. Now, we've been in a little bit of a better position because we are a new school and because of where we're located. Some would say that being in Idaho is the very definition of social distancing. <laughs> the population of the entire state of Idaho is the same as the city of San Antonio, where I moved here from, about 1.5 to 1.7 million. And, you know, and we're a very large state when you move go all the way up to, to Coeur d'Alene, which is eight to 10 hours drive north of us in the Treasure Valley. So we have a lot of spreading out that we can do, which has been nice. Now, that's not to say that we haven't been hit with COVID. We certainly have. But it hasn't been to the point where we've had to shut down operations in a major way. We did make a very quick pivot back in March to online learning for our students. And my hat's off to the faculty and staff to be able to do that in a very, very quick way. We're pretty technologically advanced as a new school. We're actually an all-Apple institution, and we are an Apple Distinguished University, one of the few medical schools that actually have that designation. 
And because we have that technologic integration, we were able to very quickly pivot, which made things go well. But we were also not strapped with having third and fourth year students during the worst of this time in March. I meet every week with all of the other deans of the osteopathic medical schools virtually, led by our ACOM leader, Dr. Bob Kane, who I think that you've gotten to meet in, in this podcast, who's a dear friend of mine and a very respected colleague. We get together to talk about how are we dealing uh, with COVID. And quite frankly, are my colleagues that had to focus much of their effort on what do you do with your third and fourth year students, especially if a hospital system says we're shutting down for medical students. We didn't have to deal with that because our inaugural class didn't start in the hospitals and clinics uh, until the end of July. And so that gave us time to prepare and to make things work and to make sure that everything was going according to plan. And as such, when our inaugural class did hit that benchmark at the end of July, every single one of them was able to start the rotations in our base sites. And our base sites are spread out. I mean, we have about a, a third of our class here in the Boise area. We have about another 20% in eastern Idaho. And then we have cadres of students in Montana and Wyoming and South Dakota, and then a couple of far-flung sites in New York and, and Mississippi because of relationships that we have there. But we've been thrilled that they've all been able to start on their rotations, putting on their N95 masks and getting to work and making things happen. We ask that they, um, that they not be put directly on COVID floors if possible, but we're fully cognizant of the fact that uh, they're going to be interacting with COVID patients in the ER and in the clinic. It's a part of everybody's lives. And honestly, for myself, you mentioned that I'm a hospitalist. As, as dean, you usually don't have the luxury of being able to practice medicine. Uh, and so I had not actually practiced in the hospital since I left Texas in October. But I really felt like I needed to understand what our students and what my clinical colleagues were going through with all of this. So last month, I had the opportunity to go back down to one of my previous hospitals down in Laredo, Texas, which is a desperately hit COVID hotspot right now. It is a place where I also helped to set up both an internal medicine and a family medicine residency program. So I know the residents that are there and the faculty I used to practice there. And so getting to go down and see a hospital that's now at 110% capacity that has had to annex the Red Roof Inn down the street to put COVID patients in and every ICU bed is covered with an intubated COVID patient. Uh, it was a blessing for me to be able to see what life is like in the worst of the worst. And my hat's off to all of my colleagues down there in Laredo and what they're doing and being able to treat those patients. And they're doing a great job. The residents are doing a great job down there. And it gave me a broader appreciation for what everybody's going through right now. And so my hat's off to my students. We were worried that there would be students that were, that were going to be so afraid of the risk that they would decide, I want to take a, a leave of absence. I don't want to go. I don't want to come to campus. I don't want to be involved in clinical clerkships. And we had a number of discussions with each of our classes. Now we have three classes about there is a risk in healthcare. You can't get away from it. We can mitigate that risk. When I started, it was AIDS and HIV. And we, we were concerned about every needle stick or hepatitis or you know tuberculosis. We could get those things. But it's certainly come under a microscope now uh, with COVID. And that risk is, is more concerning. Not one student said, I don't want to do this. Um, they, they all said, I know what I signed up for. 
I understand that I'm like the firefighter that runs into the building, not away from the fire. And as a healthcare professional, I need to be that person that puts myself at risk to help other people. And because of that, we've been able to do pretty well. None of our hospitals have closed for our students. They're all out there working. And as of July 1st, we were able to open back up our campus for our students for close contact in-person training. Now, all of our lectures are still online. We have nothing in large group settings right now. But we did not feel comfortable, as some of my colleagues have had to do, we did not feel comfortable training physicians who didn't know how to touch a patient, who didn't know how to interview a patient, who didn't know how to go into the gross anatomy lab and work on a real live dissection. And so we're doing all of that. But it's taken a lot of work and planning and time to make sure that we're following the CDC guidelines and our local health department guidelines, that uh, we're using personal protective equipment in a way that makes sense for our faculty as well as for our students. And so we're moving forward and we're moving forward in a way that we're as safe as possible, but we're guaranteeing a quality education because our future patients depend on that. Yeah, I mean, what you bring, obviously, being a clinical specialist and also wearing your higher ed cap, you see the bridge so clearly. I think a lot of times people just have one or the other, and it's hard to always translate over how to get students into a clinical setting and, and how to have that conversation. That's, that's so important right now. With that in mind, I mean, we're a teaching company, and a big part of our ethos is always trying to send messages of knowledge and fill in knowledge gaps. I'm curious to know, is there any topic out there, and it could be anything at all, you know, you mentioned being a Boy Scout and camping and all that, hearkening back to kind of that experience of like learning how to tie knots. Is there any topic that you feel like there's a knowledge gap about, whether it's in higher ed or the clinical side or the bridge that you'd like to educate us all on today that you can shed some light on? Well, I think that one of the things that COVID has made more difficult for us across the board is our teaching in osteopathic principles and practices. You know, that can't be taught so easily on a Zoom or a WebEx. And we have found it necessary to bring people back to be able to have that hands-on training. But uh, when you go into the hospitals now, our contact with patients are much less than it used to be. We have at least anecdotal knowledge that some of our techniques can really help COVID patients. In truth, we're doing physical techniques on our COVID patients right now, we're back to proning patients where you actually flip them over, which we used to do when I was a resident for ARDS patients, but you haven't seen that lately. We're doing that now routinely for COVID patients. Well, that's a physical technique. And quite frankly, the turning of a patient as much as, as the positioning of the patient can be important in helping to mobilize fluids. And so the problem is, is that we're not at the bedside as much as we were. And even when we go to the bedside, and I saw this when I was in, in practice, and another reason why I was glad I did it, because because I realized that our, our students are not able to spend as much time at the bedside right now. And so that's an issue over all types of diagnosis and treatment. But for us as osteopathic physicians, being able to continue to understand how to apply what we learned in our OPP lab at the bedside during the third and fourth year is something that's really important to us. So finding ways that we can fill in those gaps that we can help to continue to keep that part of our DO training alive during the third and fourth year is something that I think would be really, really valuable for us, not just our school, but schools across the country. You know, that's an interesting point. And I mean, the laying of hands is something that is such an ancient part of being a healer, to use a word that doesn't separate out any group. And you see less and less of that because we have telemedicine and we have other kind of tools, but they all really can't do the laying of hands that, that allopathic medicine can learn from uh, osteopathic medicine on. So that's a great point. And, and I'd love to maybe end on some advice you have for 
upstarts in their career, students that are coming of age during COVID-19. You've seen, as you said, the HIV era. What would you say to those folks? Well, a couple of things, and I say this to a lot of our applicants as they come in, you got to really want to do this first and foremost. It is a long transition to become a doctor, and medical school is not about taking a bunch of classes, getting a degree that gets you a job. It is transformative. It is a change in who you are as a person. It changes your identity down to your name. You're no longer Mr. So-and-so, you're Dr. So-and-so. And so you have to be prepared to make that transformation. And don't do it because your mom or dad said to do it. Don't do it because you think you're going to make more money. Because quite frankly, if you're smart enough to get into medical school, you're smart enough to go into business and make money. Don't do it for the money. Don't do it because your family says to do it. Do it because you're really, really called to do this. And that's important in a time where there's an increased risk because you need to understand that there is a risk that's involved, a risk to yourself, a risk to your future family. Uh, you know, I, I quarantined for 14 days when I came back to make sure that my kids didn't get it. And so there is a risk to that. And there's always been a risk to medicine. But I don't want to discourage anybody with that fire from doing it. I have loved being a physician throughout my career. And my colleagues do as well. I think that there's no greater calling and no more fulfilling profession to go into. And not only can you make a difference in every single individual you treat over the course of your career, there are so many ways to make differences in communities and regions. And you can go go into different ways, like yourself into education, myself into education, where I know that everything that I do has a ripple effect. Every student I teach to be a good and competent and caring physician is going to ripple out into tens and hundreds and thousands of patients that they treat over the course of their lifetime. So there are a lot of different ways that you can be a doctor and things that you can do and you can change mid-career, but it's always about how do we care for people? And if you have that fire, don't shy away from it because there's nothing more fulfilling. That's an awesome, awesome way to end. I appreciate that. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Moore. That was incredible. It was so much fun. I thank you so much. And thank you for all that you do to help our students to get through the process of education. Because I think what osmosis does is one of those things that really collaborates with us on the medical school side and helps our students be the most prepared they can be. So we appreciate you. That's very kind of you to say. I appreciate that as well. Listen, I'm Dr. Arisha Desai. Thank you for joining today's show. Uh, remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.